Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR 130AP76, Restitution and Forgiveness, 8th Commandment, Exodus, X22, verses 1-17. Scripture is Exodus 22, verses 1 through 17. Restitution and forgiveness. Exodus 22, verses 1 through 17. Restitution and forgiveness. If a man shall steal an ox, or a sheep, and kill it or sell it. He shall restore five oxen for an ox, and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief be found breaking up and be smitten that he die, there shall no blood be shed for him. If the sun be risen upon him, there shall be blood shed for him, for he should make full restitution. If he have nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the theft be certainly found in his hand alive, whether it be ox or ass or sheep, he shall restore double. If a man shall cause a field or a vineyard to be eaten, and shall put in his beast, and shall feed in another man's field, of the best of his own field, and of the best of his own vineyard, shall he make restitution. If fire break out and catch in thorns, so that the stacks of corn, or the standing corn, or the field, be consumed therewith, he that kindleth the fire shall surely make restitution. If a man shall deliver unto his neighbor money or stuff to keep, and it be stolen out of the man's house, if the thief be found, let him pay double. If the thief be not found, then the master of the house shall be brought unto the judges to see whether he hath put his hand unto his neighbor's goods. For all manner of trespass, whether it be for ox, for ass, for sheep, for raiment, or for any manner of lost thing, which another challengeth to be his, the cause of both parties shall come before the judges. And whom the judges shall condemn, he shall pay double unto his neighbor. If a man deliver unto his neighbor an ox, an ass, or an ox, or a sheep, or any beast to keep, and it die, or be hurt or driven away, no man seeing it, then shall an oath of the Lord be between them both, that he hath not put his hand unto his neighbor's goods, and the owner of it shall accept thereof, and he shall not make it good. And if it be stolen from him, he shall make restitution unto the owner thereof. If it be torn in pieces, then let him bring it for witness, and he shall not make good that which was torn. And if a man borrow aught of his neighbor, and it be hurt or die, the owner thereof being not with it, he shall surely make it good. But if the owner thereof be with it, he shall not make it good. If it be an hired thing, it came for his hire. And if a man entice a maid that is not betrothed and lie with her, he shall surely endow her to be his wife. If her father utterly refuse to give her unto him, he shall pay money according to the dowry of virgins. One of the unhappy facts of our age and of the previous era has been the tendency towards loose 
generalizations. Precise and accurate language has given way to terminology that is loose and places a premium on feeling rather than accuracy. This is a common and a major error among Christians and non-Christians. One area where we find a great deal of this vagueness is with regard to the doctrine of forgiveness of sins. We are very commonly told that sins are forgiven in Jesus Christ and that sin can be dealt with by forgiveness. The point here, of course, is that we must distinguish between sin and sins. Sin can never be forgiven. Sin is the principle of sins. Sin we encounter in its classic statement in Genesis 3, 5 where Satan declares, Ye shall be as God, knowing, determining for yourself that which is good and evil. Sin is man's defiance of God and his insistence on being his own God. Sin is the principle of independence from God and autonomy. It can never be forgiven. Dr. Arthur C. Custance, has said, and I quote, because it is hereditary like a disease infecting the whole man, sin is not dealt with by forgiveness. It needs eradication somehow, or at least to be bypassed in the constitution of the new man. The fruits which are expressions of it, that is of sin, need forgiveness, but the basic root must be dealt with by some other method. This root is the locus of infection. A particular sin or sins can be forgiven. Sin as a principle, original sin, cannot be forgiven. It must be eradicated. This is the saving work of Jesus Christ, to make us a new creature or a new creation. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation, according to St. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Jesus Christ is our federal head, has made us a new creation, has effected restitution, established the pattern of the perfect keeping of the law as our federal head, and effects forgiveness of particular sins on the part of his people after they are his, after they have been regenerated. Jesus Christ never in Scripture forgave the sins of the Pharisees or of the Sadducees or any unregenerate man. After they are converted, after their sin in principle is crucified, destroyed, and they are risen again in Christ as a new creation, then their particular sins are forgiven. 
forgiveness and restitution are, moreover, inseparable. When our Lord in Luke 17:4 spoke of sevenfold restitution, the presupposition was, of course, of repentance, restitution, and forgiveness. There are two aspects of forgiveness. There is the religious or the Godward aspect. Every sin is an offense against God. As David said, against thee, thee only have I sinned and done that which is evil in thy sight. But there is also the secondary or the man word, we would say the criminal aspect of sin, how it affects our neighbor. Thus, where sin is forgiven, The reference is to a particular act, not the principle of sin. The reference to forgiveness of sins in Scripture is always to particular sins, whether we find the plural or the singular of the word sin. This is true in Leviticus chapters 4 and 5, Numbers 15, 28, and elsewhere in the law. When our Lord pronounced forgiveness of sins to those in the covenant of faith, it was for particular acts of sin. And it was forgiveness to those who had become regenerated. Sin in itself, as a principle, must die. This is the meaning of the cross. It must die. It must be crucified in Christ rather than forgiven. We die in Christ as sinners and then we arise in him as a new creation. Always the penalty against sin as a principle is death. For sin is a particular act. Forgiveness is possible with repentance and restitution. With this in mind, it is easy for us to understand why the death penalty is mandatory in Scripture for incorrigible delinquents and criminals. Crime has become their principle. Since sin is in principle their life and their way of conduct, and sin in principle must be condemned, the man whose everyday activity is sin in principle, as it is with an incorrigible criminal, must therefore die. We can understand further what is involved in forgiveness with respect to restitution very specifically by the series of case laws that our text gives us in Exodus 22 verses 1 through 17. The first verse, If a man shall steal an ox or a sheep and kill it or sell it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. This is the principle of justice. If a man steals, he has to restore precisely what he stole, plus an amount equivalent to the value of what he stole. This would be for 
say $100, the restoration of the 100 stolen, plus another 100. Not imprisonment, restitution. This is the biblical criminal law. Now, a sheep has to be restored plus four more sheep by the thief. Why? A sheep has value not only for meat, but for the wool and a reproductive ability. So that a lost sheep means not only that you is lost or that lamb, but all that it would reproduce. An oxen was fivefold, the maximum restitution. Why? Well, an ox was good for meat. An ox was also good because its hide was valuable. And then on top of that, oxen were trained as beasts of burden. Oxen training was quite a skilled art in early America. They gave way finally to the horse, which was faster. But in colonial and early American, the oxen was preferred on the eastern or Atlantic seaboard and into the Middle West because it was capable of pulling far greater weights than any horse or team of horses ever could. The oxen in ancient times and until just a century ago was one of the most valuable animals that any man could have. Therefore, because it was valuable in terms of its hide and in terms of its meat, and as a well-trained beast of burden, the restitution was fivefold. Then in verses 2 and 3, if a thief be found breaking up and be smitten that he die, there shall no blood be shed for him. If the sun be risen upon him, there shall be blood shed for him, for he should make full restitution. If he have nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. <clears throat> In this law, provision was made for the householder or the property owner to defend himself against a thief. If a thief broke in at night, and by breaking in it didn't mean just into the house, as the modern law specifies it, but into the property to steal. You had the right, if he was breaking into your barn or into your shed or into your corral, to kill him. During the daytime, you could not kill him unless self-defense required. Then you were to capture him because then you could see that he perhaps could not make a resistance at night. You had no way in the dark of knowing whether he was going to kill you or not, and so you killed first. But restitution then was required of the thief who was caught. If he have nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. This takes us to an aspect of the law which survived until almost a century ago, even in this country. A thief was to make restitution, and if he could not, then he became a bond servant. And he worked out the restitution. 
If he stole a hundred dollars, then he worked out two hundred dollars that he had spent that hundred. Or if he had just stolen a hundred and didn't have anything, the hundred was restored to the man and he worked out a hundred dollars. And then he was free. Then in verses, verse 4, if the theft be certainly found in his hand alive, whether it be ox or ass or sheep, he shall restore a double. If he is caught in the act, the restitution is limited to just double. But he still makes restitution. If he's caught on the property or before he gets very far, he still makes twofold restitution as the minimum. In verses 5 and 6, we have the law of liability, which declares that if a man permits his livestock to break into his neighbor's field, either by intention or accidentally, he shall make restitution from the best of his own field or the best of his own vineyard. Similarly, if he starts a fire burning, say, trash on a corner of his field and it spreads to a neighbor's field, he must make restitution. Whether it be arson or accident, he has caused the damage and the important point, therefore, is not his intention, but the damage done to the neighbor. And therefore, restitution must be made. Our law today makes a distinction between the intention as though how the criminal feels is more important than the damages done to the victim. Then in verses 7 through 13, we have the laws of responsibility for goods held in custody. And here in particular, the law is very precise and specific. This rather involved law can be best summed up in the language of a scholar of the last century, Rawlinson, who wrote, and I quote, property deposited in the hands of another for safekeeping might be so easily embezzled by the trustee or lost through its negligence that some special laws were needed for its protection. Conversely, the trustee required to be safeguarded against incurring loss if the property entrusted to his care suffered damage or disappeared without fault of his. The Mosaic legislation provided for both cases. On the one hand, it required the trustee to exercise proper care and made him answerable for the loss of a thing entrusted to him uh, if it was stolen and the thief was not found. Embezzlement it punished by requiring the trustee guilty of it to pay double. On the other hand, in doubtful cases, it allowed the trustee to clear himself by an oath, and in clear cases to give proof that the loss had happened through unavoidable accident. Then in verses 14 and 15, we have 
laws of liability in case of rental, loan, or assistance. If a man borrow aught of his neighbor, and if be hurt or die, the owner thereof being not with it, he shall surely make it good. But if the owner thereof be with it, he shall not make it good. And if it be an hired thing, it came for his hire. In other words, if you borrow your neighbor's animal, or his tool, or his car, anything that happens, you are responsible for fully. But if your neighbor comes onto your property to help you and his equipment becomes damaged while he is operating it or he becomes hurt while he is helping you, then he is liable. He came of his own will. He cannot impose on you for his charity. The liabilities of his charity are his own. This is according to biblical law, not modern law. Even more so, according to the biblical law, if he comes to work for hire, then he is fully responsible for any damages because his hire, that is, the money he makes, must be sufficient to cover all liabilities. Then finally, the last two verses, verses 16 and 17, we considered with connect, in connection with the seventh commandment seduction. It is important here in terms of the law of restitution and is classified with it because anyone seducing a maid is then required to make restitution by paying money according to the dowry of virgins so that when the girl subsequently was married, she went into her marriage with a double dowry to compensate for the damages done to her by the deduction. It is interesting, and if you do have marginal notes in your Bible, you will see that the marginal reading for the word pay indicates that the Hebrew is literally shall weigh money according to the dowry of virgin. It was so, so much gold and silver by weight that was specified, not funny money. Restitution in Scripture is cited as an aspect of atonement. We meet with this in its classic example in the case of the Exodus. When God instituted the Passover, and saved Israel from Egypt. His law requiring restitution exacted it of the Egyptians. The King James here has one of the worst translations of all, partly because the language has changed. And so 
it speaks of spoiling the Egyptians by asking loans of this, but very literally it reads, Exodus 12:35, and in agreement with the instructions of Moses, they asked the Egyptians for silver and golden articles, also for clothing. This was by way of restitution at God's requirement. Israel had to be enriched by restitution. And God repeatedly has such provisions. For example, Abraham, when he went to Egypt and Pharaoh took his wife, was enriched. Abimelech also, and God makes it clear that he required it. And there is no judgment in these incidents by God against Abraham, but only against those who offended him. The restitution was required. It is only the heresies which limit salvation to eternity and say you are saved for heaven and see no practical implications in terms of this world which fail to see the practical consequences of God's salvation. When God saves man, he saves him in terms of time and eternity. And since forgiveness is now that under which man lives and restitution is a part of forgiveness, then man has a duty to restore the earth, to make restitution for the sin committed by his forefather, Adam. So that man's calling is to exercise dominion under God to the end that the earth be restored. And scripture after scripture speaks of the glory of this task and what it shall accomplish. It is interesting here to read what Calvin has to say with regard to Isaiah 2.4. And I quote, Since therefore men are naturally led away by their evil passions to disturb society, Isaiah here promises the correction of this evil. For as the gospel is the doctrine of reconciliation which removes the enmity between us and God, so it brings men into peace and harmony with each other. The meaning amounts to this, that Christ's people will be meek and laying aside fierceness will be devoted to the pursuit of peace. The passage is about world peace, plowshares giving way, uh, swords giving way to plowshares and so on. This has been improperly limited by some commentators to the time when Christ was born, because at that time, after the Battle of Actium, the Temple of Janus was closed, as appears from the histories. I readily admit that the universal peace which existed throughout the Roman Empire at the birth of Christ was a token of that universal peace which we enjoy in Christ. But the prophet's meaning was a comfortable state of peace exists Uh, uh, was different. He meant that Christ makes such a reconciliation between God and man that a comfortable state of peace exists among themselves by putting an end to destructive wars. For if Christ be taken away, 
Not only are we estranged from God, but we incessantly carry on open war with him, which is justly thrown back upon our own heads. And the consequence is that everything in this world is in disorder. So that, because we have been reconciled with God, atonement has been made. Restitution is now our way of life, and we are to restore the earth and to exercise dominion over it, and to live in peace one with another. There will thus be a reign of peace on earth to the measure that God's word reigns among men. The kingdom of God is the prevalence of God's order restoration, forgiveness, and peace. Let us pray. <clears throat> Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee that in Jesus Christ the principle of sin in us has been condemned and crucified, that we have been regenerated in Him and our sins are forgiven. Give us grace day by day to move in terms of restitution, both with respect to our trespasses and the trespasses of our forefathers, that we may restore this earth under Christ and make it thy kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Are there any questions now, first of all, with respect to our lesson? Yes. I didn't hear that. Between a... limit in the Mosaic law between the juvenile and the adult criminal? The answer is no. The assumption is that responsibility is always there. With a child, the parents were responsible if it were a very small child, if it were a teenager, then the child repaid as a bond servant. Yes.
the uh, implication is that it leads finally to a, a, a radical contempt of everything that God is and to this uh, to sin as a principle. That, in other words, is the great transgression. Yes. Right. Uh, the great transgression, the original sin, is autonomy from God, to be your own God. Yes. No, no. He could use it, 
but it was always hers. It was hers as her marital right. And there was a written contract. If this written contract were lost, we're told from uh, Hebrew law, uh, not in the Bible, but they were not to sleep together until it was rewritten. Because that was the basic, that was the marriage contract. So loss of it immediately meant that all marital relations stopped until they got all the witnesses together and the judge and wrote out the contract. You have a survival of this type of thing, or you did have for a long, long time, because marriages were by such contracts in our culture, in that uh, marriage certificates used to be framed and hung in the bedroom. Now that was the survival of the old contract term of marriage. And I can remember as a small boy you'd find in some uh, farmhouses this old-fashioned custom. Yes? Yes, it would. Some would have a very sizable dowry, and others would not, but there was a minimum dowry. And very often, you see, the girl would have a larger dowry if the, husband, the father added some gifts to it, because he would be thinking of his grandchildren. So apart from anything he might later give them, in advance, he would endow his daughter to make sure that uh, his grandchildren, if something should happen to him, were well taken care of apart from the estate. Yes. No. No, that is uh, Schofieldianism. It isn't the Bible. Yes. So that's uh, a heresy that's crept in in recent years. Yes. It was a civil judge. Very often they were Levi. Not always. But it was a civil judge. Yes. The laws of restitution in our present legal system have virtually disappeared in the last century, except in limited areas. You do have, with respect to automobile accidents, which is a curious thing, restitution required by our insurance law. Then, in offenses against the federal government, you do make restitution. If you steal from the federal government, you uh, repay. So uh, the federal government, uh, it does, it's changed there too, so it's just the sum plus interest. But uh, the federal government is one of the few areas where restitution laws have any uh, standing yet. Yes? Is the interpretation of the biblical passage is consistent with the same or exact? I mean, it's going to be reasonable to assume that 
there's a great deal of difference with regard to interpretation. These differences rest on presupposition. In other words, take the word predestination. Now, it's there in the Bible, it's very plainly taught. But some people, in principle, do not believe in predestination. So no matter what the Bible says, they explain it away. Similarly, the word hell is in the Bible, and it's very clear what it means. But you can find people who will tell you that uh, there is no such thing as hell according to Scripture. I might add, I read recently of a New England uh, clergyman of the colonial period who uh, remarked in his journal after witnessing some of the evils among men. He said, my heart leaps up with joy every time I hear the good news of damnation. Now, that's a, a line to remember. <laughs> At any rate, you, you get the point. When people come with certain ideas in their mind, they insist on reading them into the Bible. There's nothing you can do to counteract that. But if you come to the Bible and make the Bible its own interpreter, it's very clear. Yes. How did the what? Oh, yes. The debtor's prison was a humanistic uh, improvement on bond service. You just stayed until some friend or relative or your family paid off, made restitution. Yes. Yes, what would be the incentive for the bond servant to stay rather than to leave? A very good question. Now, if he left, he was doubly a thief, was he not? Then he might be classifiable as an incorrigible, in which case he could be executed. So it was a good thing to stay. Yes. Six twenty-one. Who wrote him six twenty-one? From what? This is an English hymn. Uh, I don't know precisely what it has reference to. The date is 1838. But it is an interesting question, what he had reference to when he said, Correct us with thy judgments, Lord, then let thy mercy spare. Our time is just about up, but there are a couple of things I'd like to share with you. One of the things about the Puritans in early America that is so endearing 
is their prayer life because when they prayed, you knew they were talking to God. They were very uh, homespun, direct, and honest in their prayers, and sometimes very moving as a result, and other times very amusing. Uh, this is one of the prayers of Minister Miles for rain. O Lord, thou knowest, we do not want thee to send a rain which shall pour down in fury and swell our streams and sweep away our haycocks and fences and bridges. But Lord, we want it to come drizzle, 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 drizzle for about a week. Amen. <laughs> then this one I have made reference to before, and I think it's especially choice. It was before the Battle of Monmouth in the War of Independence. The Reverend Israel Evans, chaplain to General Enoch Poor's brigade. O Lord of hosts, lead forth thy servants of the American army to battle, and give them the victory. Or if this be not according to thy sovereign will, then we pray thee, stand neutral and let flesh and blood decide the issue. <laughs> then, from the period in the days just before the election of Lincoln, when some brigades were being established and troops in various states, I like this from the bylaws of the Bungtown, Ohio Riflemen. Article 1st. This company shall be known as the Bungtown Riflemen. Article 2nd. In case of war, this company shall immediately disband. <laughs> One final note, an interesting sidelight on the Civil War is that at that time, it's very interesting, the privates complained continually about the food situation because the choicest meat, poultry, the generals got. The next best, pork and lamb, the officers got and all the privates got was beef. Now it's interesting how our standards and tastes have reversed. Beef is now the choicest meat in people's minds and poultry is the uh, least. It's the poor man's food. Yes, one. during the Civil War would sing songs uh, showing their resentment. They All they got was steaks and the poultry the generals got, and they weren't happy about it. Well, with that, we are adjourned. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. 
Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by Christ Rules. Dot com.